Good morning, Gospel Hope. Man, you are a lively bunch, that extra hour, huh? Well, not extra, the fact that we're just kind of, the time machine kind of forced us out. Um, man, I'll tell you, pray for your pastor. I'm in denial. I was tempted to be a little bit grouchy. Was there anybody other than me caught by surprise by how quickly it came time to set the clocks forward? That, this is not, that, isn't that like a month from now that we do that? This is the normal window? I'm telling you, I saw it on like the television. It was like on the news. Oh, do this? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Why am I in the future? Right? And then I got the text from Lynn and I was like, no, no. Maybe I was like on the Isle of Patmos. I was in the spirit and I was seeing things as they would be, but not, um, not, not now. No. And then to make it particularly difficult for us is, um, both of the, um, the Dewberry children were out on field trips, one in Charleston and one in D.C. And um, Doria, um, her bus wasn't getting back to the school until like 11.30, 12 last night. So it was kind of like I went to kind of take like a night nap, knowing that I was going to have to get up and go get her. And then I find out I'm like giving up and, you know, I got to forfeit an hour of sleep. I was like, what's going on? Right? So not, not fun. But anyway, we're here. Right? Amen. We are here. Um, but if there is a country that doesn't practice this, um, there is a missionary in the pipeline, right? <laughs> Send me, Lord. Uh, uh, amen. Well, hey, all jokes aside, let's go before the Lord and ask for his help. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning. We recognize that regardless of how we feel or regardless of what we think, we desperately need your help. As far as the heavens are above the earth, Heavenly Father, so is the gap, so is the distance, so is the greatness of our deep need for you. We ask, oh God, as we hand these hearts over, mine and Lord God, theirs, all of ours, uh, we need you, Lord God, in terms of the speaking, Lord God, of your word, the extracting of truths, Lord God, that fully reflect your heart, uh, Lord God, and also in the hearing, Heavenly Father, we desperately need to hear from you. Just a word, oh God, um, that we can know that we have heard from you would fill our hearts, oh God, with uh, incredible joy. Our community needs you. Our world needs you, oh God. And we know that you desire to meet a need for our community and our world, Lord God, through your church. So, um, Heavenly Father, equip us this morning uh, to be your redemptive solution to a broken world as we leave this place. Refuse to let us just gather in buildings and do church as tradition, but let it truly be, Lord God, a demonstration of our great worship and commitment to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So as you've already heard, we are continuing in our series, The Great Escape. Good morning, brothers. Good to see you. Um, it's good to see all of you. Um, uh, but we are continuing in our series, The Great Escape, and as you've already heard, we are up to chapter 12, verses 45 and following, and going into a little bit of chapter 13. And so last week, we talked about the Passover, and this week, we are going to talk about the Passover. And so you're going to feel a couple of things in the service, you'll be like, wait a minute, this is weird. So number one, we're going to take communion again this week. The reason we're double-clicking on that, as a good friend of mine, Daniel Grissom, would say, when we double-click, it just means we're going to give some additional emphasis to something we may have already covered, uh, prayed. We we won't be redundant, uh, but the Lord seems to feel the need that we need to double-click on the conversation of Passover. You see, last week when we talked about Passover, we talked about it as a symbol, S-Y-M-B-O-L. This week we're going to talk about Passover as a symbol as well, C-Y-M-B-A-L. Yeah, 
You see, when we talked about Passover as a symbol, we talked about how it, it projected, it forecasted, it, it, it symbolized, it indicated or gave us a sign of something that God was doing that would have greater fulfillment uh, later on. But, but I also see this great analogy where we see the Passover being used as a symbol, something that helps humanity keep up with a certain rhythm. Now, you understand rhythm, right? Not the ability to dance. I'm talking about how life itself is built around rhythms. I mean, think about it. Throughout our lives, we celebrate the rhythm of life, right? There are folks who are celebrating anniversaries, people who celebrate birthdays. There are those who are celebrating uh, uh, various milestone moments, right? And think about how those rhythmics, those rhythms in our calendar cause us to think and to be reminded of certain things. Uh, rhythm is important, right? I mean, think about what happens uh, uh, here on the stage as, you know, we, we have this wonderful and this incredible time of worship that's going on and you've got, you know, Ben on the bass and you've got James on the lead and you you got, you know, Aaron on the keys and you got Jalen jumping around and twisting and, you know, and, and pumping us up and singing and doing whatever you do, right, on his various instruments. And, you know, whoever the full team is that's up here, you have all this activity. But you know what's happening in the background of all that activity? Something very, very subtle. The sound of the cymbal. Making sure that all of that activity, all of that activity stays on a certain schedule because without the cymbal, Without the rhythm, all that beautiful worship just crashes into this cacophonous and chaotic and awkward time. And we're like, who's supposed to be saying that? Who, what, why are they doing that? Isn't it incredible how rhythm plays a critical role in our lives? I mean, think about some of the rhythms that you and I live by. I mean, we are anticipating uh, with some dread and maybe even with some excitement tomorrow morning. Because tomorrow morning, Monday, uh, uh, has for us a certain rhythm in store. We know what we're supposed to be doing when we arrive at the workplace. Why? Because rhythmically, we know what Mondays look like. We know what Tuesdays look like. There's certain things that have to happen in our lives on a rhythm. We, we know what happens. I mean, think about our birthday rhythms. I mean, hey, if you're turning 50, you're like, ooh, let me look in the rearview mirror. Am I, am I, am, how am I tracking with respect to, you know, retirement or my bucket list? You know, if you're turning 30, you're like, hey, um, look, you know, am I in rhythm? Am I, am I on schedule with things, right? Uh, you know, why am I with a house, a spouse, you know, uh, uh, transitioning from the BMW to the minivan, right? Like all these markers in life tell us different things. And so we are people of rhythm. Well, in today's text, we're going to make a discovery that God has always known that humanity does its life on rhythms. As a matter of fact, in the book of Genesis, when he created the worlds, we saw God giving us some of those rhythms, including the lights in the sky, so that, you know, a full cycle of the sun would represent for us a day. And even when we see the moon, it would be a guide to us at the night. And so the Lord recognizes that we are people of rhythm, and he's given us certain rhythms to work off of. But there is something very staggering that happens in today's text, and I want to share it with you just briefly as we take a look at one of these rhythms. So in Exodus chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, I want you to hear this and hear it very clearly. This was probably part of last week's kind of textual landscape, but it's critical to this week's understanding. In, in, in uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses uh, 1 and 2, it says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Isn't that amazing? 
So, so as the Passover is instituted, God says, I'm getting ready to do something awesome, right? You've obviously, he's pulled down and embarrassed all of the idol gods of Egypt. And he's going to come in and say, the Passover is not only just going to be me passing through the land with the death plague and passing over the, your, your homes, passing over your sins, but I also want you to kind of park the bus and make the Passover not just, a, not just a, an event that I did, but a scheduled thing that you also will do. And so we're going to look at the statute of the Passover and the kind of rhythm that it creates in our lives. And so we'll do so on this particular thought banner this morning. The Lord's work of redemption should be the foremost rhythm of my life. So of all the rhythms that I follow, my birthday rhythm, my anniversary rhythms, my, uh, you know, of all the various milestones that I can think of, of all the rhythms that, 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 that gain ground in my life, my work rhythms, of all my rhythms, the Lord's work of redemption should be the foremost rhythm of my life. I believe that this is a true statement, not only because God did it for Israel as he announced the Passover, not just as an event that he would do, but as a, as a, as a celebration that, that his people should do, but there are clear indications in the scripture that we too as non-Israelite contemporary believers should also do life with respect to the Lord's rhythm. The Lord's work of redemption should be the foremost rhythm of my life. Now there are four such rhythms that I see naturally kind of bubbling out of today's text and I'm going to share them with you. The first rhythm is this, they'll be on the screen for you, a sense of reset. There is a sense of reset. The second rhythm is this, a statement of relationship. The third rhythm is this, a commitment to remember or a call to remember. And then the fourth rhythm is a commitment to reproduce. All these rhythms are self-evident within the text, and I don't believe that they are isolated in history in the Old Testament. They are rhythms that we too ought to follow, and they all model themselves around the Lord's work of redemption in our lives. So as we begin to talk about this rhythm, I just want to share this kind of idea with you. Let's ask yourself the question, why was the Passover not just allowed to be an event, but it was officially instituted as a, as a, as a scheduled celebration within Israel? Why? Is it just because the Lord wants to build traditions? Is the Lord just being fancy? Well, there's no waste in God's economy, and he never does anything arbitrarily. And so the Passover was instituted because it is this. It is God's plan. God's plan for the Passover is that it would be more than a singular event in, in their national history, but a reoccurring theme in their personal journey. I'll say it again. God's plan for the Passover is that it would be more than a singular event, but that it would be a, a, a moment of, of reoccurring, a th reoccurring theme in their own personal journey, their own personal journey. You've heard something similar here. Think about this, the Passover, the most climatic event of, in God's relationship with Israel. That single event that, 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 that gave them their signature throughout all time in history. And the Lord wanted it to be a reoccurring theme for them. There's something that we say in Gospel Hope 101 and something that we even say from this pulpit. And that is that we never outgrow our need for the gospel. There is this singular event where we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, if we know him, we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and that singular event of what God did through Jesus Christ on the cross in history then collides with our personal journey, and we are called to over and over again revisit the beauty and the, and the, and the, and the wealth and the benefit of the gospel in our lives. We never outgrow our need for it. Therefore, also, you see kind of this echo in history, Israel never outgrew their need to revisit God's great work 
work in their life through the Passover. And so this is why I believe that this is a relevant message for us today. And so we talked about initially that this, this, um, um, uh, this work of redemption, this Passover is instituted as one of the primary rhythms to, to, to do this for them, to give them a sense of reset, a sense of reset. Notice how the Lord said to um, Israel that this would become for you the first of your months. This is the first month for you. God's work in our life is intended to create for us a deep and great sense of reset. Has anybody ever felt the need for reset? Oftentimes, you know what happens, right? We either wait for milestone moments like, well, you know, when I get, you know, 18, this is what I'm going to do. Because we've gotten tired of like 16 and less or 17 and less. Or we say, well, you know what, on my 40th birthday, I'm going to do this. I'm going to officially uh, uh, get my life together, or start adulting, or hopefully nobody said that, you know, by 40. Maybe you did it way earlier than that. But we do these things. But, but we also do things like we'll, we can have a, a, an incredibly rough year, and it could be as early as like right now, and we're saying, you know what, 2020, one of my New Year's resolutions is going to be X. We're always people looking for reset. And we reset our lives based on these calendar-based events rather than pressing reset in a way that the Lord would give us an opportunity to press reset. The Lord wants us to be able to press reset around his redemptive work in our life that our reset wouldn't be dictated by the calendar. So when we look at Passover, what about it? What does the Passover include that allows people to press reset at any time they need to? Uh, follow me very carefully. Look at this in um, Exodus chapter 12, verses uh, 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 43 through 49, we read that briefly, but I want you to hear something. It says, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Uh, no slave that is bought for money uh, shall eat it unless you have circumcised them. No foreigner that is hired worker may eat it, and it shall be eaten in one house, and you shall, take, you shall not take any of its flesh outside, and you shall not break any of its bones, and all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And if a stranger shall sojourn with you, he shall keep the Passover to the Lord, and let all the males be circumcised, and then he may come near and keep it. And if he be a native in the land, or, uh, excuse me, uh, and, but there, uh, let the, excuse me, but let no uncircumcised people eat of it, and that there be one law between the native and the foreign stranger that um, sojourns among you. What is the Passover about? So you learned last week that Passover depicts something in the future life of the believer, specifically the celebration or the, uh, uh, the, the, some of the things that come out of our celebration of communion. Let's look at when the Lord celebrated Passover with his disciples, and where does this whole idea of reset come from? Look at this. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And here's what he says. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessed it and he broke it and he gave to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and, he, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the Lord gives us this fresh picture of what Passover is all about, that this is about forgiveness of sins and covenant with God. At any time in my life that I feel like I need a reset, I don't have to wait for the calendar. I don't have to wait for a birthday. I don't have to wait for an anniversary. I don't have to wait for anything other than to bring forward a fresh memory of what God has done in my life, and you too. 
If you are a person who is tired, who is weary, who is worn out, if you are a person who feel like you have just been taking it on the chin from everything that life has to throw at you and you desperately need a reset, you don't need to buy a plane ticket to Cabo. You don't need to go to Vegas with your girls. You don't need to get away and get in your car and just drive in one direction as far as that tank of gas will let you. You need to press reset with the Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel says, the Passover says, the Lord's sacrifice on the cross says that this whole thing was done that there might be a remission of sin and a reminder of covenant. So as often as we find ourselves wore out with life, press reset. And that reset button for you is to simply remind yourself of what God has already done for you. Refresh it in your memory. Refresh it in your mind. Revisit it. And to realize that the Lord says that no matter how sordid that thing is, think about it. He says that the, that the Lord ate the Passover with his disciples, and he said that this blood was shed for the remission of sins. This is not for ceremony. This is for the remission of sins. In other words, I can't think of, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest with you. I can't think of seasons of life that bring me down more than active sin. I mean, there can be stuff that happens externally, but what does it do in our heart? It oftentimes causes us to sin because we, we droop and disconnect in our faith, right? And so the whole idea that God would have us in communion with him to celebrate the remission of sin should free us. It should free us that there is nothing that you can go through or nothing that you can bring to God that has not been addressed in the cross. It is done for the remission of sins. And so within the Passover and for us within communion, there is a sense of reset, but not just within communion. Anytime that we come together and we commune with the Lord, not just around cups and bread, but anytime that we commune with the Lord, we can press reset and refresh our hearts and minds in what he has done. And so it gives us a sense of reset. But why is this reset necessary? Look at Romans chapter 3, verses twenty. 3 and 26, or 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation uh, by his blood. Does anybody know what propitiation is? <laughs> oh, good. It's not. Ooh, Travis. Yes, yes, you know. So the propitiation is when the, the seat of wrath becomes the mercy seat. That is when I'm what I'm due to be doomed and damned and damaged and God says in Christ uh-uh flip the script you're going to receive mercy and so the Bible tells us that, it, that as we as contemporary believers would, would, re, would reflect on the essence of what Passover is about, that is reflecting the fact that the Lord passed over, it was mercy. Remember this, no one, who, no one who put the blood on the doorpost of their house could necessarily stand before God and say, look, my paint is redder. You ought to stop here. You, you ought to pass over this one the faster, Lord. We're better than all the Egyptians. No. The only differentiator as the death plague went through Egypt was that there was blood on the doorpost. That was the only differentiator. It was purely an act of mercy. There was nothing that defined the people in those dwellings other than their willingness to submit to what God had done and say that what God has done is true. I can't think of a better place that illustrates this than 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 uh, and following. Listen to this very carefully. 
It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My children, I am writing to you these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the covering on the doorpost. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. Only thing I wanted to be reminded of and just to understand that if you are at a place where you need to press reset, you are in the right place if you are in Christ. And reset is not calendar-based, it's character and confession-based. Did you notice what John told us in 1 John? He said that if we will confess our sins, we will have fellowship with the blood, and God is faithful and just to forgive us. To confess doesn't just mean to tell on myself, but it means to come into agreement with God. That's what Israel did. They received mercy for their sins, not because they had done anything spectacular, other than, well, if God says do this, I agree with him. I'll put the blood on my doorpost. We today practice the same thing. God, I agree with you. I'm not going to hold myself hostage to sin. I'm not going to hold myself hostage to guilt and remorse. I'm going to give it over to you. Even though I don't feel like I qualify, guess what? That's a beautiful feeling because it is so theologically precise. You don't qualify. You don't qualify. Everything else in life, when it comes to forgiveness, we feel like we have to qualify. But before God, we don't have to qualify. What we have to do is confess. God, I agree with you that this is your provision for covering my sin, and I agree with you about what you say about me, that I desperately need this. This is how we press reset. This is how we echo the great truth of Passover in our current day. The Passover is both a covering from wrath and a confession that, God, you know what? You're right. You said you were going to come through at midnight and deliver the death plague, and you did it. That's what our confession is. God, you are right, and I'm wrong, and that will get you covered from his wrath. I'll close it this way. Forgiveness of our sins, self, and others ought to be one of the most frequent rhythms in our lives. We talk about rhythms, forgiveness of our sins. We ought to, as often as we recognize sin in our lives, immediately go before God and confess it. Because 1 John tells us that if we don't say we have any or we have no need for forgiveness, that the word is not in us and we're actually making him a liar. But, but forgiveness of our sins, go get that. And then forgiveness of ourselves. The moment that we go before God and ask for forgiveness, stop beating ourselves up. Stop believing that we somehow need to do more to gain God's approval because to do so is an act of faithlessness and almost a sin in and of itself. I'd go so far to say that it is if I continue to hold myself hostage. Sin. Forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of self, and forgiveness of others ought to be regular rhythms in our lives. We don't want there to be any disruption in our individual lives. We don't want there to be any disruption of fellowship in our marriages. We don't want there to be anything that stands as static between us and God. We want active fellowship with the blood of Jesus Christ. An active, constant fellowship with the blood of Jesus Christ means that there is an active and constant analysis of my life and recognizing where I didn't get it right. And God, I just want to hand that over to you. I need to press reset today. Oh, I need to press reset tomorrow. So if I could beg you anything, don't wait. Stop waiting to press reset. Stop, stop, stop saying that I'm going to press reset once I get more consistent in reading my Bible. No, just press reset now. 
We've already read verses 43 through 49. We talked about a statement of, excuse me, a, a sense of reset, but also we need to see when we look at verses 43 through 49, there is a deep statement of relationship, a statement of relationship. Now, if you were reading that with me, it, it, it felt kind of heavy because it seemed as if a, a, a great majority of what God was saying was like, once you participate in the Passover, no, 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 and no. Here are the folks that cannot participate. Did you feel that? Did you feel a lot of no in the text when we were reading that? Yeah, and you should. You should. There's nothing wrong with feeling that. I, and, and it's not like there's an absence or a, a lack of love. Let me ask you a question. Let me, let me ask you a question. Uh, Carrie, where are you? Would you join me down front? My family suffers from uh, post-illustration traumatic disorder because I'm <laughs> always... I'm always um, doing something that makes them slightly uncomfortable. So, so let me ask you a question. Um, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're, if you're a, a females in the house, if you're, wearing a, you're wearing, if you're wearing a wedding band, just put your hand up. You got your, you got your ring on. You got your ring on. Put, put, your, put your hand up. Yeah, yeah, keep them up. Keep them up. Let, let, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. If, uh, if I ask you um, uh, to, to, oh, just let me borrow that. Let me, let me borrow your, your ring uh, for the weekend. I'll give it back. How would you feel? Would that make you feel awkward? Why? Because that's not some just daily wear costume jewelry, right? That's your wedding ring. It is this definitive statement of covenant between you and your, your spouse. Now, let me ask you another something. This is going to make you real awkward. Let me just say if I sit up here and I just said, hey, listen, um, Carrie and I have officially decided to practice an open marriage. Is that not awkward? But do you know why it's awkward? Because every fiber of your being says that a marriage that is open and non-exclusive lacks authenticity. You understand that exclusivity creates authenticity. You're sitting there saying, well, that wouldn't be a real marriage then, right? And so when we see the Lord in the text fencing off the Passover, the first perception might be, why is God being so exclusive and selfish and elbowing people out? Well, real covenant has exclusivity. Real covenant has exclusivity. And guess what? The symbols of covenant have exclusivity, do they not? Because look about how look at how many of you refused to let us borrow your wedding band. So both the covenant is exclusive and the symbols of covenant are exclusive. So, thank you. Um, so when you hear the Lord fencing off. The, 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 um, the Passover in this statement of relationship, all the no's that we see point to the fact that, 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 that this is holy and it is relational and it is not traditional. It is not just a function of cultural conditioning. This isn't just a ceremony that the Lord is calling Israel to. There must be some lines in the sand, some chalk on the field. There must be something exclusive about it. You see, God uses the Passover to promote the beauty of covenant and not just the prohibitions against the stranger for coming. Did you notice that in the same passage that the Lord indeed provided a provision? He fenced off the, 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 the ceremony. He fenced off the Passover and said, these people cannot, 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 cannot participate. But then he turns around and says, now listen, if they're willing to be circumcised, let's do it. So that there be one law between the native and the sojourner and all those that are among you. So, so God's call to exclusivity isn't to elbow people out, but to clearly indicate what it means to be in. In uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
verses 23 through 29, we see a similar fencing off in the contemporary expression of Passover or it is, it is communion. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus one night when he was betrayed broke bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he too took the cup after supper, saying that this is a cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink, and do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, you also drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When the, when, when, when the Holy Spirit worked through the apostle Paul to provide that passage, two things were happening in the, in the Corinthian church. They were dishonoring the Lord's table by people coming in ways without announcing and analyzing their heart. You see, the participation in communion is just as fenced off as it was participation in the Passover. The reason being not that God is trying to be stingy, but that exclusivity means something. In all of our relationships, whether it be business or even personal, have you ever noticed that the relationships increase in value as they increase in exclusivity? Like, if everybody got access to it, you're like, well, that's fun, but it ain't unique. But in all of our most meaningful relationships, even in the business world, we're constantly trying to ebb toward, can I be your only supplier? Can I be the only company that you do that with and get that from? It is, it is of human nature to aspire for exclusivity. Why can't God do the same? And so the exclusivity that comes, that, that, that spills out of the covenant is not about offense, but it is truly about showing people the gate or the door, if you will. This, this opportunity that we clearly see in the text where God says in verse 49 that, that you can invite others in lets us know that God's mind has always been on mission. You notice that? Even as his most exclusive conversation, God turns around and says, now if you want to participate, here's how. Not that you can never participate. The same rule follows for us. The Lord is working in our lives. And yes, relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is exclusive. But it is not completely walled off from those who would desire to come. The exclusivity, here it is, the exclusivity of relationship with God is a billboard and not a roadblock. It is an advertisement of this everlasting goodness that God wants to showcase to the world and that the billboard of that exclusive relationship would actually be a calling card for others to come in. Here's what Ephesians has to say about it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, put it this way. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our sins and trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will or according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The Lord wants to hold up the church as a part of his master plan to say, this is a billboard of the beautiful, exclusive relationship that I have with my people. Does anybody want any of this? Why don't you come? The exclusivity is part of the beauty. The scriptures... Continue. In verses 13, excuse me, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we transition from a statement of relationship actually into a call to remember. Now, memory is powerful, and it was very important to the Lord. Verses, uh, Exodus 13, verses 1 through 3, read this way. And the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is uh, first, uh, first to open the womb amongst the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and by a strong hand of the Lord by which he brought you into this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten amongst you. 
It is a call to remember. He installs it within their culture so that over and over again, there will be this constant call. Let me ask you this. How many uh, computer professionals in the room, forgive me if I butcher this, um, but how many people know the difference between RAM and cache memory? Right? Random access memory, RAM. Thank you. I see the hands. All right? But RAM memory is that stuff, right, that, that I mean, it's just kind of, it's, it's just woven in there. It's in that largest part of the memory. And in cache memory, if you know what that is, that's the stuff that gets promoted from RAM that says, you know what, you use this program, you access this application all the time. Let's bring this up to an area that you have limited processing time to wait for that. This is how memory in a computer works. It's actually modeled after you. Because you recognize that you got RAM and you got cache. You recognize that there are things that you have stored, like your PIN number, your, you know, your birthday, Right, your social security number. This is stuff that you keep top of mind. But there's other stuff that gets not, it doesn't get used that often, like that German class you took in high school, the Spanish that you took in college, right? Grandma's address, the recipe for gnocchi, right? Things that you don't use, they're in you. You can remember them, but they're not active because you didn't pull them forward. And so Passover calls Israel to a place of constantly remembering. Now, remembering is super important because throughout the book of Deuteronomy, there are over 30 references to remembering what the Lord did for you. And here's why the Lord, in all his great wisdom, knows that memory is important to us. Follow this. In Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, follow me carefully. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel, which went to, uh, excuse me, he went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord in the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work of God that he had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. And all that generation also gathered, was gathered to their fathers. That means that they died. And here it is. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know what that is? That is the trailer for the book of Judges. Years and years and years of idolatry and sin and strife and suffering and having to come back to God. That is the trailer for it. How did they get there? A failure to remember an entire generation of people who did not remember how God brought them out of Egypt with a strong hand. Memory is not just academic, it is redemptive. Do you remember earlier in the story of the great, uh, uh, the, the, the great escape? How it said that the Lord saw the suffering of Israel and it said, and he remembered his covenant. Do you think God somehow forgot that God was sitting at his desk and his reception was just like, Lord, aren't you supposed to be doing something in Egypt? He was like, oh, it's 430, I'm supposed to be. No, when it says that he remembered his covenant, it doesn't mean that it was absent from his mind. It means that he pulled it from history, from his historic memory breaks to the forefront and says, now we're going to take action on it. And deliver my people. We too are called to constantly keep the redemptive work of God in the forefront of our minds. As an active meditation. As something that we actively focus on. Why? Because if the children of Israel's pattern in the book of Judges tells us anything. We know that, that, that an active memory of what God is doing is the best vaccine against spiritual regression. I mean, if you see seasons of spiritual regression in your life, I can guarantee you that in that moment, you weren't thinking about the greatness of God's work in your own life. 
That is a part of the blindness that the adversary provides. He, he causes the, 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 the emotions and the senses of our flesh to rage within us so that we don't hear, focus on, and pull forward the great work of God in our lives. Think about the great regret that we feel when we sin and we fall down before God. Oftentimes, the regret is both around the casualties that we created and the consequences that might be coming or are coming. But also, we hit ourselves on the knee or wherever you hit yourself, and you're like, man, I can't believe I did that after everything that I know and everything that I've been, been through. Like, how did that happen? We didn't pull it from the ram to the cash. It wasn't active. It wasn't in the forefront. It wasn't at our fingertips. And so pulling things to the fingertips of our memory is crucial. I want to walk you through something else. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, this is a classic passage that many of us are familiar with. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, not forget truth, suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God had shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The passage goes forward and forward and forward. And there are four times where it says that because of their inability or their lack of commitment to pull God forward in their cash memory, because they didn't want to retain him in their knowledge, it says in the Lord, turn them over. And he turned them over and he turned them over four consecutive times in later passages. So what we discover is, again, that memory isn't just an academic. It isn't like creating a, a, a scrapbook of spiritual moments, but it must be actively pulled forward in something that we're focused on so that it had breathes new life into the things that we're encountering and that we go through. So then one must ask the question, if this is the Passover's job, if the Passover is God's active vaccine against future spiritual, uh, um, future spiritual regression, what has God done for this generation? Because Passover isn't our deal. Well, number one, he's given us the Lord's table. We celebrate that. We are to actively remember the Lord's work on the cross institutionally. But individually, he has given us the Holy Spirit. Here's what the scriptures say in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we, the children of God, and if then heirs, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. It says that the Holy Spirit is given to us that we are, have a constant reminder that we are the children of God, but not just kids. We are, his, we are the heirs with Christ. Jesus even in John chapter 14, when he introduced his disciples and subsequently us to the Holy Spirit, he says, you shall receive this helper and it will help you to remember all the things that I've taught you. Memory is, is redemptive, active memory. Again, so not just journaling and scrapbooking away, but actively processing and pulling forward what God has done in history and what God has done in your own personal journey is redemptive. The call to remember throughout all generations is not just for Israel, it is also for us, Gospel Hope. I'm okay with it. Was that like a half applause? What was that? Yeah. <laughs> or just like a pencil snapping. Um, here it is. I'll put it this way. A failure to remember what God has done is the first step to falling for what Satan is doing. We see that throughout the history of Scripture. A failure to remember what God has done in our life 
and in history is the first step to falling for what Satan is actively doing. You fear, you're afraid, you got anxiety about falling into sin next. Your first step to head in that direction is to forget what God has done and what he is doing in you. To just tuck it away in books. To tuck it away and just make it uh, uh, verse memorization. Verse memorization is cool, but verse meditation is better. Bringing the work of God constantly forward in the heart and mind is crucial to our development, crucial to our deliverance, crucial to us being able to hit reset and to remind ourselves of God's great work. In Exodus chapter 13, verses 8, 14, and 16, kind of a weird sequence there, the Lord does something else. He shows us yet another rhythm that he expects to exist within the lives of his people. He says in verse uh, 8 of, of chapter 13, and you shall tell your sons on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me personally when I came out of Egypt. In verse 16, he says, and it shall be a mark on your hand and on the frontless between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And again and again, this, this refrain, this rhythm, that the reason that God is doing these things, that when your children ask about it, now this is powerful. At first he's saying, I want you to do it as an active memory of what God is working and doing in your life. But then he turns around and he says, when your children ask, why do we celebrate this? Why do we consecrate our firstborn to the Lord? Why do we um, stand here and eat dinner at the table with our sandals on like we're getting ready to bolt out of here? Why are we doing that, Lord? And he wants them to turn around and tell the story in every single generation. We ought to be actively discipling every generation that we have at our fingertips. We cannot just say, well, we're just going to wait for them to have their own experience with the Lord. Because they did that in the book of Judges, a whole generation that did not know or remember the great works of God. That was, that was shared culpability. It was both the generation that didn't know's fault and the one that preceded them to fail to transfer forward and sit around the dinner table and celebrate effectively. They made the Passover perhaps a ceremony, but they didn't teach through its symbolism. They didn't establish a rhythm within their families. I mean, does that sound familiar for, for us? How many of us, don't even put your hands up, or you can if you want to, how many of us grew up in the church but wasn't growing up in Jesus? We would participate. How many of us would, would come and take of the cup or even see baptisms done, and we thought that was awesome. That was a special day at our church where we get a snack. But the symbols didn't say anything to us. They didn't set a rhythm in our homes and our hearts. How many can confess that? How many can confess that you've heard the word gospel over and over again and somebody says it to you, you don't know if you're talking about a certain kind of genre of music or a certain section of books in the gospel. But the last thing that came to your mind was 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. The actual gospel. How many of us? And so these, these ideas of, of making sure that our, our, our fixtures of tradition and religion and our celebrations and ceremonies don't become that, that we actively disciple through them because we should be creating rhythms with them, not just rituals. And so we are called to be able to hit the reset through the Passover. We are called to the, into a great statement of relationship through the Passover. We are called to remember throughout all generations uh, the great work of God's redemptive work in the Passover. And we are also called into a commitment to reproduce the knowledge of God's work in each generation. We are called to that. Even if they're not your kids, even if it's not your next generation, 
We are called to that communally as a people of God. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, verse 26, we've already read that. But in that, notice what Jesus says, that as often as you take of this cup and eat this bread, you show forth, you declare the Lord's work on the cross until he comes back. How many of us, as we, as we take communion, considered ourselves actively waving a banner for the gospel when we took communion? Or did we just close our eyes and sip and hope that we were doing it right? So institutionally, we've been called to show forth, wave a banner for the Lord's death through the way we do communion, the way we sit at the Lord's table. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, no stranger there. Individually, we also have a mandate that we should be making disciples. And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The Bible is dripping with generational responsibility. We should always be reaching back and pushing forward, reaching back and plugging forward, reaching back and teaching forward so that subsequent generations have a rich and robust encounter with the gospel. Even in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you see the Lord Jesus Christ who takes the Great Commission and says, oh, by the way, Holy Spirit is going to fall on you, and then I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready to supercharge the Great Commission, and you shall be witnesses of me. So God, listen to this, when you look at the Great Commission, especially when it passes through the, the, the work in the book of Acts, what you see is that God has always had a plan that the good news would establish a redemptive rhythm that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and multi-geographic. He wants the gospel to go everywhere. He wants the news of his redemptive work to constantly move from individuals to nations, from individuals into families. So this whole idea of Passover is not a past thing that only applies to Israel, but it is very particular to us too. Our Passover is any and every often celebration of the Lord's great work on the cross. And so, what should you do with this? I got a couple of opportunities to implement for you. I don't know how you actively remember and create rhythm for God's redemptive work in your life, but I'm going to share some with you. Would you be so bold as to start praying the gospel? What does that sound like? Right? We go before God and just constantly acknowledging, Lord God, this great distance, difference, and, and, this, and, this, and this difficulty, this disagreement between you and I, because I was a sinner and you are not. I'm the creature and you're the creator. You came to, 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 to close that gap. You came to me out of love. That was the only compelling force, not because I qualified. We pray that. We can pray the gospel. We can pray the gospel. We not only can pray the gospel, but we need to be actively preaching the gospel to ourselves as we see ourselves drifting, as we see ourselves failing to remember. Keep fresh memory. Preach the gospel to yourself, not just reciting the words of Scripture as it were a tradition, but also how did the gospel very particularly show up in your own life? Preach the gospel to yourself, but more importantly, preach the gospel to your problems. The next time a problem creeps up in your life, give it a name. And then go to the scriptures and declare that Jesus has a name that is above every name. Oh, by the way, it was given to him by the Father. So that, so that at that name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Preach the gospel to your problems. Let them know. Put them in their place. Press reset daily. Don't let anything live in your life that is not actively being subjected to the rhythm of God's redemptive work. But then practice the gospel. 
Be so bold as to put yourself out there, not because you're perfect, but sharing the gospel in the lives of others, practicing the gospel, loving your enemies, loving people that don't deserve it, showing grace and mercy for those who otherwise might not get it and definitely don't qualify for it. Show that and then say that. Let people know the the rhythm that is in your life and what creates that impetus for you to want to share and love them. Articulate the gospel to people. And even if you don't feel qualified, that's awesome because you're going to see the Holy Spirit show up and do something that you could not script for yourselves. So pray the gospel. Practice the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself and even your own problems. But by all means, don't try to wait until you're perfect to do something with the gospel. The Lord's work of redemption should be the foremost rhythm of my life. If you're here today and you're saying to yourself, man, that sounds cool. I would love to have that. But, man, my experience with the faith, I'll be honest with you, Pastor Rod, or whoever you are, guy on stage sweating, my experience with the gospel has been very generic. My experience with the church has been very traditional. My experience with the Bible has been, has been just kind of based on, like, I know what it is. I see it in the, in, the, in the desk of hotel rooms. I wouldn't dare to open it because I don't know what it's saying. Like, I, I recognize stuff like John 3.16 because I was at a Packers game once, and I know that he put that up on the cards. But, 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 but if you're here and you're saying to yourself, what is this whole thing about rhythm about? Here's how you get rhythm. By understanding God's great work on the cross done specifically for you. And what is that work? You heard this fancy word, propitiation, where the mercy seat, excuse me, where the, where the seat of wrath actually became a mercy seat. That is where all of God's anger, every ounce of his anger and wrath stored up for those who reject him was subjected and placed upon the person of Jesus Christ so that God would say anybody who would believe in my son Jesus Christ would find safe haven from my wrath. Our biggest problem, ladies and gentlemen, is not running from the devil or financial difficulty. It is God himself who says, I'm coming through the land and my righteousness is indiscriminate in who it impacts when I'm showing my righteousness and my wrath. But I'm going to provide a door of mercy. If you will just come under the lordship of my son, even if you don't fully understand what that means, God's not asking for us to have theological degrees or Bible certificates. He is not asking for perfect understanding. He is asking for a pierced heart. A heart that says, God, I do not want to experience your wrath. I want to experience your beautiful and exclusive fellowship. And he says, that is available in my son, Jesus Christ. Will you trust him? Will you believe that I really did send him on your behalf, that I really did subject him to my wrath for on your behalf? Will you really believe that I really raised him from the dead on your behalf so that he might have glory, victory over death and the devil and anything that seeks to impact, impact you? Will you believe that? If you will believe that, then you will be saved from God's wrath. And you will be welcomed into his loving grace. This is the rhythm that God wants to set. If you're the person who, whether you're saved or not, and you have been racking your brain on, on like how to hit reset, 
You're going through all of these iterations of like, man, maybe I need to move to a new city where nobody knows my name or all of this kind of craziness. But that's not what God's calling us to. The great reset is that we would bow a knee to him and that we would come into agreement with him and let him put your past in the rearview mirror. Let him handle your past. We're running from our past, in many cases, trying to put it in our own review mirror, but it continues to haunt us. You need someone who can handle your past and your present and your future, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to establish a new rhythm in all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you this morning for your great work on the cross and the great rhythms that you create within our lives so that we can remember that work, that it will be active in the forefronts of our minds. We ask, oh God, um, even today, if we're struggling to find some point in our past where we've actually bowed the knee to you, Lord God, let that pierce our hearts and cause us to realize that we may not know you. And Lord God, for those of us that do know you and we're just struggling we're struggling, oh God, to live for you in a wonderful and a beautiful way. We're struggling to have victory over something or someone or whatever it is in our lives, oh God. I pray, oh God, that you would just visit us with a fresh memory of your powerful work on the cross. We need you in this way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to take communion again um, this Sunday. Uh, in, throughout the history of the church, there is, no, there is nothing in the Bible that overtly tells the church how frequently we must take the table. We see patterns that would suggest that at certain points in times how often they did do it. But, but, the, but the mandate that Scripture gives us is that when we do take of the Lord's table, that we do so worthily. And that as often as we take of the bread, that we also take of the cup. And that we do that with an active and fresh memory of who the Lord is. As we invite you today, I want to give just some special instructions. The Lord has been gracious to, to us as a church family, which means there's just more of us over and over again than there are uh, typically at other times, which means we need to be able to manage the chaos a little bit. I want to ask that those of you that as we stand and get ready to come, that those of you who are in the back would come first and just kind of let the back rows come first and we just kind of systematically get to the front. And if you would go to the outsides as you come around and take uh, of the bread and of the cup. We want to ask that you would take the elements, go back and sit down, and that you would just kind of commune and pray with others. And then John is going to come up and actually lead us to take together as a family. All right? So just a couple of points of instruction. Again, if we would just all stand, if you plan on participating at the table, if you would, from the back rows first and then coming around to the outside. And then once you get it, would you keep it? Go back to your seats. Get a group of folks that you're going to just kind of pray with and just love on. Do that together. And then John is going to come and actually lead us in taking uh, of the elements. Can we do that? Amen. I also want to just provide an additional, uh, just kind of a layer of clarity. As you're moving, you can, you can move now. As you may have heard, this is the wedding band, and it's not to be borrowed. So if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be inappropriate to celebrate this just yet? If you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, again, this is not a prohibition as much as it is a, an invite. And so if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, like, Lord, I want to take up your table, 
Will you talk to me? Will you talk to the people that are around you and find out what does it mean to walk in covenant with the Lord? We want you to do that. I also want to ask you to just kind of examine your hearts and say, Lord, show me in my life how I might show forth and declare your great work on the cross through the way that I take of this cup and this bread. Amen. Let's worship the Lord and commune together as a family, and then John's going to lead us in co a collective communion as a, as a body.